produce a brand of over a quarter century standing, which must mean he was 14 when we met, because today is his birthday. And he doesn't look any different than the day I met Daniel Faith Brooks at an after garden club antiques forum. And one of the wonderful things about this forum, you know, is so many scholars, particularly those from above the Mason Dixon line, think they need a passport to get down here. <laughs> and, and you really don't. And, and what Betsy said in her quote, uh, I think is fantastic because New Orleans and this forum, uh, as well as others within the region, are the most wonderful cross pollination <coughs> of what's happening in Mid Atlantic and, and up there further in Yankee Land. And, uh, and the extraordinary scholarship that's happening both here and about here. And that's been going on for a long time. And Daniel is one of those scholars who has opened my eyes to the richness, the great richness of this area. We're going to be hearing about a topic that I've been hearing about for all of those 25 years. And at last, it's beginning to be disseminated because um, he has been devoting such a vast amount of research to William Rufus King. He needs little introduction to this group, but I will give him that privilege anyway. For more than 25 years, Daniel Page Brooks served as the director of Arlington Historic House and Gardens, the only extant antebellum structure and the only house museum in Birmingham, Alabama. He remains an adjunct instructor in decorative arts and history at Stanford University and is a founding faculty member of the Alabama Governor's School. A native of Alabama's Black Belt region, Daniel curated a portion of the landmark exhibition made in Alabama, A State Legacy, in 1995, and altered an essay for the accompanying book. He's published articles in Alabama Review and Alabama Heritage and was a contributor to the major compilation, The Vice President. Um, a former president of the Alabama Historical Association, Daniel is the recognized expert on the life of William Rufus King, one of Alabama's first U.S. senators and vice president under Franklin Pierce. Upon his retirement from Arlington in 2010, he moved to his 1820s home in Lounsboro, Alabama, where he's currently completing a biography of King, and we're going to be hearing about his diplomatic service, service, service. Service and opulence and intrigue, and this is going to be a wonderfully spicy lecture. So please wish him a happy birthday and welcome Daniel Faberos to the program. Thank you, Tom Savage, for that introduction and I also want to say thank you to my friends, Priscilla Lawrence and Jack Pruitt, for including me in this forum and the previous forums. It means so much to be in New Orleans and to be a part of your city and of this collection, and to the collection for the wonderful hospitality, and to the great technical assistance from Kent, and to all of you for your valued camaraderie. We are all. <laughs> you know, we are related 
in so many ways. We all love the past. We all strive to preserve. And hopefully we all respect our mission to be good stewards of this wonderful Gulf Coast culture that is forever changing. I am honored to see so many of my friends in this audience, and I am especially touched to have Alice Merriweather Bowsher of Birmingham. She is a lateral descendant of William Rufus King. Her mother, her aunt were great friends. They inspired me. And I know that there have been dear souls that have inspired you. Grandmothers, great aunts, teachers, a departed antique dealer that lived down the street. There have been countless individuals that have mentored you. And so for the next few minutes, I want you to remember them. Think about them. And think about how they have put you on a track that have led you to this place and how they have altered your life and put you on a course with a valuable mission. In the 1950s, life in the Alabama Black Belt appeared in some respects to have changed very little from the previous century. Many families continued to reside in tight-knit communities associating with descendants of neighbors their ancestors had known. They defended segregation, resisted intruders, and frequently honored 19th century leaders as if they had lived only yesterday. Considering these circumstances, it's no small wonder that my childhood became entangled with the memory of William Rufus King. All these cultural influences seemed even more apparent on day trips from Camden to Selma, where we visited an elderly cousin who operated an antique shop in her home on King Street. My great aunt would drive my grandmother and me into town, cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and motor a short distance down Broad Street toward the Hotel Albert. Opposite the Wilby Theater, we would make a left turn on Selma Avenue, and continue on our way, passing stately and well-kept homes until we reach the short, shady street that runs through Live Oak Cemetery. Our route was always the same, and the dialogue of the white-haired ladies nodding in the front seat seldom varied. Once inside the cemetery, the car would move very slowly as we passed under the moss-draped trees. What followed was a ritual, we would pause near King's marble mausoleum, listen to my grandmother recall his kinship to the Beck family in Camden, then quietly pull away, as if paying a silent tribute to the final resting place of Alabama's most distinguished statesman. Today, when visitors pass, drive past the mausoleum, they find a marker erected to King by the Alabama Historical Association. The brief text outlines his life in public service, but fails to mention that he was inaugurated U.S. Vice President in Cuba and remains the only executive official to take the oath of office on foreign soil. The marker does, however, provide a good introduction to area museums and libraries that display some of King's portraits and personal possessions. The Selma Public Library exhibits an important image that portrays King as a handsome and mature diplomat. 
attributed to the artist George Healy. The portrait is believed to be the likeness owned by Louis Philippe, who also commissioned Healy for portraits of John C. Calhoun and Andrew Jackson for his American gallery at Versailles. A colorful provenance not only cites this likeness being used as a practice target by a Yankee sharpshooter after the siege of Selma, but closely links it with Fring's King's French decorative art now in Montgomery. For decades, Alabama history teachers have looked to the State Department of Archives and History to supplement lessons on King with their students. They have boarded yellow school buses and traveled from every corner of the state to visit the archives and be dazzled by the elaborate silver, ormolu, and porcelain used by King when he was minister to France. While markers, portraits, and precious objects all attest to William Rufus King's importance in Alabama, textbooks, articles, biographical sketches, and a dissertation only summarize his national prominence. In recent years, newspaper columnists have debated the political correctness of having King, a slave owner, as the namesake of a county in the state of Washington. And several popular magazines and books have sensationalized or distorted his private life. Yet none of these works adequately chronicle the activity, personality, or decorative art of one of America's most colorful and unknown statesmen. During this forum, focusing on the continental art and culture of the historic Gulf South, let us not just look at his opulent collection of French objects, but let us put these objects into a full and proper historical context by examining his colorful life, and the intriguing diplomatic mission that helped extend America's western Gulf Coast boundary. William Rufus Devon King, the son of William and Margaret Devon King, was born in Sampson County, North Carolina on April 7, 1786. His road to prominence, which began on his father's plantation, took him to the University of North Carolina and into the world of law, politics, and diplomacy. In 1808, he was elected to the North Carolina House of Commons. Two years later, at the age of 24, he won a seat in Congress where he served for almost three terms, aligning himself with John C. Calhoun, Henry Kelly, and the cause of the young Warhawks. In the fall of 1816, resigning his congressional seat to become Secretary of Legation to William Pinckney, the newly appointed minister to the two Sicilies and the court of Russia. King had longed to travel in Europe, and during his tenure first in Naples and later in St. Petersburg, the young diplomat observed social customs, recording vivid descriptions which he noted, rendered scenes worthy of the pencil of a painter. No doubt this opportunity satisfied his personal ambitions and provided him with valuable diplomatic experience. After a year of travel and foreign service, King returned to North Carolina and found that Alabama fever had swept the seaboard states. The urge to move was strong, and by the next spring, he relocated in the fertile Black Belt within a great bend of the Alabama River. In a short time, he became a successful planter, built his home Chestnut Hill, and was founder of a city 
he would eventually name Selma. Alabama settlers recognized King as an established leader. The handsome young man commanded their respect and confidence. He was chosen to help prepare the state constitution and elected one of Alabama's first United States Senators. In 1819, an observer described the new senator. He is about 33 years of age, a very elegant looking fellow, a fluent speaker, and a man of respectable talents. King's talent and experience, coupled with an imposing appearance, fostered great confidence and popularity with admirers who respectfully addressed him as Colonel King. By his third election as senator in 1834, the well-known moderate was a recognized leader in the causes of land legislation, tariff reform, and banking. King, a Democrat, was in most cases a strong supporter of Andrew Jackson and worked diligently to preserve the Union. His political and personal accomplishments were hailed in both North Carolina and Alabama, and citizens of both states claimed him as their own. On the other hand, not everyone hailed King with accolades. His life in the 1830s was also marked by criticism and insult. In 1834, he met and developed a close relationship, a friendship, with Senator James Buchanan of Pennsylvania. The two men shared political sentiments and both remained lifelong bachelors. In time, their relationship became more intimate and by 1836, the two shared a residence in the capital city. Eventually, the comments about King's manners and appearance as a Southern gentleman created amusement from some Northerners and caused whispers and jokes, especially among political rivals. Ignoring the insults, King and Buchanan maintained their friendship and focused on politics and governmental affairs. King, who was elected President Pro Tem of the Senate in 1836, garnered strong support for vice presidential bids in the elections of 1840 and again in 1844. However, when both efforts failed, he remained steadfast in the Senate, attracting the attention of President John Tyler, the chief proponent of the annexation of Texas. The Tyler White House was abuzz with questions. Would annexation come, and what would it mean if it did? To some, a special source of worry involved the fear that England, viewing the situation with open disgust, might finagle the recent goodwill of Louis Philippe to counter American intentions. In this tense and salient situation, Tyler, intent on annexation, needed the perfect envoy to serve as minister to France. In April 1844, he selected Senator William R. King of Alabama. Tyler instructed King to strengthen subsisting relations, but left the method of accomplishment entirely to King's discretion. Resigning his Senate seat to accept the assignment, King wrote a very poignant letter to Buchanan, expressing his reluctance on leaving him. I am selfish enough to hope that you will not be able to procure an associate who will cause you to feel no regret at our separation. For myself, I shall feel very lonely in the midst of Paris, 
For there I shall have no friend with whom I can commune as with my own thoughts. Surrounding himself with family, King, age 58, finalized plans to go abroad. On June 6, 1844, he sailed from New York to Havre, accompanied by his recently widowed niece, Catherine Ellis, age 29, his nephew, William T. King, 15, and John Bell, his trusted body servant. Arriving in France, the little party boarded a steamer bound for Paris and their rich and spacious accommodations at the Hotel de France. The family's first two weeks in Paris were fast and active. While King spent most of his time meeting appointments and seeking a suitable private residence, his niece and nephew explored the city and its suburbs. For Catherine and William, Paris in the 1840s was both enchanting and exhilarating. They toured historic sites and wrote letters to relatives in Alabama describing architecture, theater, French customs, parades, and a performance by the celebrated pianist Frederick Chopin. It was also during these weeks that King traveled the short distance from Paris to Versailles for a special court presentation and his first private audience with the monarch. Louis Philippe, known as the bourgeois king, viewed Versailles as a royal expense and rarely held court there and was planned with the semi-annual activation of the fountains. But King, this unique meeting presented a perfect opportunity. According to plan, he would declare the priority of his mission and at the same time strengthen American rapport by recalling the monarch's pleasant exile and travels in the United States during the French Revolution. Donning a blue and gold uniform and carrying his ceremonial sword, the Alabamian addressed the court and began charting a course left to his discretion. In the initial appearance, he not only affirmed America's friendship with France, but he also sparked strong personal interest by recalling Louis Philippe's regard for Lafayette and his own memories of the old general's celebrated trek through Alabama. Contemporary accounts reveal that Louis Philippe listened attentively as the American envoy delivered remarks and extended greetings from President Tyler in the United States. When King had finished, the monarch stood and positioned himself for a royal response. Mr. King, I am not unacquainted with your eminence in the American Republic. I know with how much ability you have filled your many posts of honor, and I am rejoiced that a man of so much experience and so much fame as a statesman represents this great republic of yours. Be assured I shall lose no opportunity in extending my respect to you. Yes, I have lived in the United States. I know your people, and I am happy to greet you. With this cordial response, King knew that his approach was well received. Yet as weeks passed, pressure from the disgruntled French Foreign Minister Francois Guizot created new concerns. The prickly Guizot, a strong advocate of an Anglo-French alliance and colonial expansion, resented King's growing popularity and America's effort for good relations. As Guizot plotted, King wasted no time in revealing his most subtle and ingenious French connection. 
According to family memoirs, one cold afternoon when Louis Philippe was suffering from a severe bout of rheumatism, he sent a messenger to King requesting a visit. Upon the envoy's arrival, the monarch excused himself for not rising, saying, My old enemy has me under attack. King acknowledged the greeting with the customary bow and accepted an invitation to sit. As the story goes, while reminiscing about the early days of the American Republic, King subtly captured the perfect moment to tell the monarch of his kinship to the House of Orleans. There in the private chambers, the American shared his genealogy and the family connection. He spoke of his mother, Margaret de Vaughan, and her for French descent, and her for great-grandmother, Margaret Condé, a member of the House of Orleans. When the long conversation ended, William Rufus King had not only established a personal friendship with Louis Philippe, but he had secured the promise that France would not interfere with the annexation of Texas. By spring 1845, King, encouraged by the monarch's promise, took leave of his rigorous schedule to visit the ateliers of leading artisans. He had collected porcelain and ancient relics during his diplomatic tour of Naples and Russia, and Paris now afforded opportunity to buy for his homes in Washington and in Alabama. As weeks passed, it was not long before Louis Philippe became aware of King's interest and granted access to his finest purveyors, Louis Railway and the House of Odio. Louis-Marie-Francois Railway, like William Rufus King, possessed a personal connection to the House of Orleans. Utilizing family ties and a small inheritance, he built a successful business and eventually claimed the title of royal faience maker. In 1845, Railway was well established on the fashionable Rue d'Alepe, marking tablewares for both royalty and wealthy subscribers. Most of these table services, including the one purchased by King, bear a monogram or coat of arms and are embellished with a line border. King's set, comprising 48 place settings and various serving pieces, is further decorated with a gilt K and a golden eagle representing the King crest as well as Europe's interpretation of America's national symbol. Many of the pieces in the service, including a pair of terrines and six sauce boats, are monogrammed more than once. According to research by the late John Keith, pieces like these were vastly popular with Americans traveling in Europe, as well as retailers marking French porcelain in the United States. Additional research indicates that Railway retailed linens as well as fine glass by Baccarat and other makers. The King glassware includes not only various forms of stemware, but punch cups, pitchers, claret jugs, decanters, individual water bottles, finger bowls, and covered serving pieces. Surprisingly, most of the fine damask tablecloths and napkins ordered from Railway also survive. Included in this list are eight banquet cloths and 72 napkins decorated with serpents, sphinx, pyramids, and hieroglyphics. This motif is noteworthy in that three volumes of ancient history from King's Library bear marked passages relative to early Egyptian culture.
No doubt, however, the most important purveyor to King Louis Philippe was the famed House of Odio. Established in 1690 during the reign of Louis XV, Maison Odio gained its greatest distinction from prestigious commissions under Napoleon and the Bonaparte family. Although the renowned Jean-Baptiste Claude Odio, who influenced classical and directoire silver, lived until 1850, it was his son who excelled in the rocaille design. Charles Nicholas Odio was the outstanding French silversmith of his generation. By the time King was in Paris, the younger Odio had not only succeeded his father as court silversmith, but had developed a dynasty that supplied silver to royalty throughout Europe. Comprising the immense service selected for William Rufus King are four large plated waders over 26 inches wide and many smaller first standard pieces including six meat trays, 24 dinner and luncheon plates, vegetable dishes, sauce boats, mustard pots, master salts, bottle stands, wine coolers, a cake basket and tongs, and place settings of flat silver with various serving pieces. All of the large plated items and the smaller first standard objects are engraved with King's monogrammed and marked Odeo Aperi. Both the six meat trays and the 24 dinner and luncheon plates are finished with ribbon-tied reeded borders interrupted by matted acanthus. The flat silver with monograms engraved on the reverse side is a regal form of the Orléans era and comprises 36 place settings, all marked odio. Of special interest are the more decorated pieces of hollowware, including wine coolers, vegetable dishes, and mustard pots. The urn-shaped coolers, standing 12 inches tall, feature reeded rims with handles fashioned in the form of grapevines, terminating with ripened fruit. But it is the vegetable dishes and mustard pot that highlight the silver service of this American diplomat. On the left is one of a pair of 12-inch covered vegetable dishes on a monogrammed circular stand supported by scroll feet. Topping the container is an engraved lid with ribbed panels featuring a handle in the form of a carrot. To the right is the jewel-like mustard pot, measuring six and a half inches tall. This small vessel lined with a gold wash is in the form of a conch shell standing on the back of a dolphin with its delicate handle shaped like coral. All of the porcelain and silver seen was certainly fit for royalty. While records indicate that William Rufus King ordered his porcelain in glass and linens, it is clear that the great commission of silver, as well as Ormolu, was a personal gift from Louis Philippe, conveying his admiration and friendship. A recently discovered letter, written in Paris by King's niece, Catherine Ellis, to a cousin in Alabama, not only gives a very touching insight into the significance and advanced magnitude of the monarch's gift, but reveals the great feelings held by King and his family on the day of delivery. In the last week, Uncle received to his attention four very large containers delivered by King Louis-Philippe's porters. Once placed inside, they were immediately unpacked so that we might view the contents. 
Oh, my dear cousin, the richness of objects one will rarely see. We now have treasured gifts of the most elaborate table silver, like nothing I have beheld. And there is more. Included is an opulent array of bronze painted to look like gold. The beauty of these things is unsurpassed. Oh, to see the face of our dear uncle. He was so touched by the king's gift. All of this causes me to remain at a loss for words. During his remaining months in Paris, William Rufus King and Catherine Ellis entertained Louis Philippe and court members with lavish dinners. Although the details of etiquette and protocol evade, it is safe to assume that further diplomatic gains were made at the dinner table and there was triumph success in American foreign policy. King's departure from France in September 1846 heralded much more than President Tyler had expected. Not only would France not interfere in the United States' annexation of Texas, but King had helped develop America, helped gain, America gain assurance that there would be no French intervention with the settlement of the Oregon boundary and there would be no negative French involvement in a war with Mexico. King returned home, resigned as minister to France, and after a brief intermission was back in the Senate where sectional controversy Problems with slavery and Western expansion dominated. In the summer of 1850, he was elected president pro tem of the Senate, the position that he had held from 1836 to 1841. He exercised moderation during grueling debates and wrote, I have pleaded with patriotic senators from every section of the country to meet on the grounds of compromise. When California sought admission to the Union, King worked long hours with Henry Clay in a select committee to draft the Compromise of 1850. Two years later, the Alabama Democratic Convention again endorsed King for vice president, proclaiming him the distinguished, long-tried, and ever-faithful senator. At the party's national convention in Baltimore, King was the front-runner for the second office, while Buchanan and three other candidates competed for the presidential nomination. After an exhausting battle, Buchanan's bid failed and Pennsylvania refused to support one of his competitors. Instead, the Buchanan camp backed General Franklin Pierce, a dark horse candidate from New Hampshire, in exchange for a ticket allowing them to name William Rufus King as his running mate. King, who was now 66 years old, had reached his ambition with a landslide victory. As Democrats celebrated, his spirits were dampened with the realization that he was the last Senate leader of his generation. By the end of 1852, Calhoun, Webster, and Clay were dead, and King suffered from a distressing cough. He frequently dined alone, using Mark napkins for what he deemed precautionary measure. He rarely gave speeches, but spent most of his time assuring Southerners that Franklin Pierce 
was more dependable than the aging Whig candidate, General Winfield Scott. As the election approached, King's cough turned into a more serious problem, forcing him to decline events held in his honor. Yet when election results were announced, he was elated to learn that Pierce had won and the Democrats had carried all but four states. In December 1852, the Congressional Globe reported that William Rufus King, whom they now dubbed the father of the Senate, had found it necessary to resign his seat. King, like Clay, had been diagnosed with tuberculosis. Congress expressed concern at the loss of so many colleagues. Writing to a friend, one fellow senator lamented, Mr. King, who has just been chosen vice president, is not well. It is feared he may not be inaugurated. Death is thinning fast the elders of our republic. As cold winds chilled Washington, the news of King's condition circulated. The Charleston Courier reported that he had made a will and was preparing to leave the city for an island in the Caribbean. Mindful of his frailty, he outlined the disposition of his large estate that included four plantations, a countless slave force, as well as his valued set of French silver and porcelain. In a will dated January 1, 1853, King prioritized his first request. Finding my health rapidly failing and without great change, my life must soon come to a close. I give and bequeath to William T. King, my beloved nephew who was with me in France, two large cases of silver deposited with Corcoran and Riggs Bank in Washington, also all of the bronze, china, and glass which constituted my dinner service while I resided in France. King's condition worsened and public interest heightened. On January 12, 1853, President Millard Fillmore ordered the U.S. steam frigate Fulton to remain on alert to take King to a warm haven. Considering the need for urgent departure and a hopeful return by the March 4th inauguration, Fillmore's choice proved wise. The 17-year-old Fulton, which stretched 188 feet, boasted a speed superior to any vessel in the American or British Navy. Three days after the first order, the Fulton left Norfolk, Virginia, bound for Cuba. Accompanying King on board were his niece, Catherine Ellis, and his body servant, John Bell, who packed selected pieces of silver not deposited with Corcoran and Riggs. The ship steamed south, stopping in Key West to allow assessment of King's condition, but after a week of evaluation, the party proceeded on to Cuba. The cannons at, at the forts of Mora and Punta boomed a salute to welcome the Fulton's arrival in Havana. On disembarking, a military guard escorted the Americans to a country estate outside the city where they remained, remained for almost two weeks. Soon the breezes off the Florida Straits further aggravated King's weakened condition and the sickly statesman was back on board the Fulton heading east to the port city of Matanzas. <coughs> Meanwhile, in Washington, Tragedy and sadness clouded preparations for the March 4th inauguration. President-elect Pierce, his wife and 11-year-old son, 
were passengers in a train derailment. Pierce and his wife escaped unhurt, whereas their only child was crushed to death before their eyes. As Pierce grieved, Congress grew more concerned about King's inability to be present for the inauguration. If he could not return to Washington, then a provision must be made to have him sworn into office on foreign soil. On February 23, 1853, Congress passed unprecedented legislation allowing William Sharkey of Mississippi, the American Consul General in Havana, to administer the oath of office to King in Cuba. As spring crept across the Cuban coastline, King's health was further aggravated. If he was to improve, he needed to advance inland to an ingenio where he could avoid all breezes and also take advantage of warm vapors in an active sugar mill. As news of King's dilemma traveled, plantations throughout Matanzas sent invitations offering their hospitality. On the day King departed Matanzas City, Ballou's pictorial reported that a large crowd assembled to bid the frail American farewell. As he stepped inside his coach, he could hear voices of slaves chanting, God be with you, God be with you. The carriage departed for the 15-mile journey to Ariadne, the grand estate of Colonel Jean Chartrand. The plantation that Chartrand originally operated as a cafetel was, after a devastating hurricane, rebuilt as an ingenio. The San Domingue native found the destruction to be a sign of good fortune and named his estate La Ariadne for the idea that the goddess had shown him the way from coffee to sugar. The road leading to Ariadne was of bright red earth bordered by the palms, the king of the tropical forest. From every vista there were lush orange and lime trees and an abundance of floral beauty. At the end of the long drive stood the stuccoed mansion with its high roof and long piazzas. Chartrand's house included 21 rooms and afforded palatial quarters for the ailing guest. Although fatigued from his journey, King was delighted with the change and hopeful that his condition would soon improve. But in the days that followed, his therapeutic visits to the mill contributed little sign of benefit. No longer did he resemble the Byronic view for the handsome statesman of earlier likenesses. William Rufus King was now the subject of a newly completed inaugural portrait painted by Chartrand's son, Augustine. He was a sickly old gentleman, prophetically holding his book of common prayer. To all who saw him, it was apparent if he was to be vice president, the American consul general must act quickly. On March 25th, the Consul General arrived at the plantation to administer the oath. Cuba in the early spring was an exotic place in comparison to cold and windy Washington. One witness described the elements of the setting. The clear sky of the tropics over our head, the emerald carpet of Cuba at our feet, and the delicious breeze of coolness over us. The 300-foot peak overlooking Ariadne Plantation was indeed an impressive place for this exceptional event. Although feeble, King insisted on standing to take his oath. Lifting him from a couch, two American military guards steadied him as he recited his pledge. 
When finished, tearful witnesses watched him as he silently gazed across the valley at a winding stream, colorful fields, and brown mountain peaks. Mrs. John Chartrand, an observer, recalled, The ceremony, although simple, was very sad and impressive and will never be forgotten by any that were present. To see an old man on the verge of the grave, clothed with honors which he cared not for and invested with authority which he could never exercise, was truly touching. Following the ceremony, a large open carriage, accompanied by American soldiers on horseback, took the ailing vice president back to his quarters. William Rufus King had gained the distinction of being the first and only United States executive official to receive the oath of office on foreign soil. Realizing that death was near, he wanted to go home to his plantation, but he would not leave without showing appreciation to his host at Ariadne. In keeping with their French heritage, the dying statesman selected two of Odio's silver trays and presented them to Mrs. Chartrand. Taking her hand, he struggled to tell her the story of his mission to France and of America's great friendship with Louis Philippe. With this final heartfelt gesture, King departed Cuba on April 7th, his 67th birthday. After a five-day voyage of some 500 miles, the Fulton arrived in Mobile, the Mobile Register reported that an immense assemblage of citizens waited at the government street wharf to greet their beloved leader. But instead of cheers, sadness hung over the crowd as the ship's officers lifted the vice president into his carriage. King was not quite home. He remained for the next two nights at the Hotel Battle House, where he asked an Episcopal priest to pray that he would be able to return to his plantation and die among his family. On April 14th, the vice president boarded a river packet for his final trip. Running full steam from Mobile to King's Landing, the boat broke all previous records for speed on the Alabama River. As King traveled from the river to Chestnut Hill, he remarked that his fields never looked greener. At 6 p.m. on April 18, 1853, William Rufus King died quietly in the front room of his one-story house, surrounded by his family and faithful service. He had been an elected official for 45 years and vice president for less than a month. In the days following King's death, newspapers from Alabama to New York published black-bordered tributes and funeral details. The New York Herald reported that burial rites were conducted by the rector of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Selma. An attendee later recalled that a crowd of public officials, bereaved family, and slaves stood quietly under the trees to hear Jefferson Davis give an eloquent eulogy. Davis pierced his Secretary of War, praised the old statesman's years of service, and closed his remarks by reminding the mourners of King's devotion to the Union. With clouds of war looming on the horizon, life quickly changed for the people King loved. James Buchanan was elected president of the Torn Nation, and Catherine Ellis became a frequent guest in the White House. The two maintained a close family friendship, 
and corresponded until Buchanan's death in 1868. William T. King, the beloved nephew, shipped the beautiful French objects to his home in Selma, where they were seldom used. He eventually married the daughter of a wealthy Alabama governor, and at the age of 32, was killed in the Civil War that finally ended. Years passed, and the people of Selma, like Southerners everywhere, immersed themselves in efforts to honor their heroes and fallen dead. By the 1880s, Selma's city fathers, wishing to pay homage to William Rufus King, moved his body and mausoleum to a prominent spot in Live Oak Cemetery. And it is there, under the moss trees, that we honor his memory and remember his legacy. Thank you.